0: Hi, I'm Diane Gregg, and welcome to Invisible Women, a podcast about eight women who worked in espionage during World War II. They were from different countries, cultures and backgrounds. What they had in common was the opportunity to step outside of societal norms, while at the same time working in the shadows. And while their contributions were incredibly important, they've been hidden. Invisible Women is an opportunity to hear their stories, to explore their roles in society, and to discover what we can learn from these stories that's relevant today.
1: I found a store with a radio, but the owner said it was his and that he would not part with it. I stayed talking and cajoling with him for half an hour and left with the radio. I came to understand that I had sensibilities around the undercover work that went beyond my languages and secretarial skills. And later I realized that in a crisis I had the ability to go cold and to do what was needed. That served me very well as the war went on. That's Liliana, a young woman who worked
0: as a wireless operator for the Polish military in one of the first resistance cells in France. It wasn't until her wedding day that she discovered that saying I do also meant saying yes to the very dangerous and perilous job of espionage. Not only was this a surprise, but also that this decision was made for her by her husband. The cultural beliefs about women and the relationship power gradient between men and women supported his decision, and these were the same beliefs that underpinned the propaganda of the time. That's the focus of this episode of Invisible Women, women through the lens of World War II allied propaganda.
2: Once again, America watches its ramparts. Come what may, the guns are manned, the battle wagons wait, the sky patrols are on the alert, and once again, fighting men stand ready to carry on America's oldest military tradition to attack... To attack the forces that threaten us, with all the men and all the equipment, we can hurl against them.
0: The term propaganda came into widespread use after about 1622, when the Roman Catholic Church used it to describe the commission of cardinals responsible for spreading the Catholic faith to foreign areas. At that time, it was associated with something honourable and respectful, but now, as you know, conveys information and ideas that are Misleading, dishonest, and it usually refers to publicizing a specific political cause or perspective. These misleading and dishonest aspects of propaganda are related to what is culturally darkened and hidden from us psychologically. Through enculturation, we are exposed to societal beliefs which we assimilate and internalize early on, and these beliefs become the lenses through which we perceive the world, which in turn is our reality. If our societal belief system and their lenses lie unquestioned in us, they are unconscious. We all at times make decisions and take actions without fully being aware of their presence, which can invite the manipulation of us through them. So how did the Allied forces keep men fighting, especially since World War II came just 20 years after World War I? And how did they keep women within the cultural mores of the time, even though the norms were being stretched to include them in jobs previously reserved for men. It was done through an extensive and targeted propaganda campaign, which reinforced the societal stereotypes and expectations of women and men in the 1940s. In the late 30s, There was the particular difficulty in shifting public opinion about women's roles – bringing women into the workforce in order to keep the economy going, all the while maintaining the hierarchy of traditional norms. The understory to this was the rollout of an extensive, emotionally-laden propaganda program focused on the contradictory stereotypes of women including women as victims, women as threats, or domestic beings. Bringing women into the workforce was not about the emancipation of women, but rather the only aim was to increase the size of the workforce. Societal expectations pre-war in Europe, the UK, and North America were similar. Simply put, women were expected to tend to home and children and be dutiful wives. Men were expected to secure work outside of the home and to protect it, and their women – wives, mothers, and their children. You know, in the 1940s, for the most part, women didn't have the same citizenship rights as they do today. In some countries, for instance, they could not open a bank account or make school or medical decisions for their children without their husband's signature. And in France, women who had the burden of citizenship through resistance work did not have the right to vote until the mid-1940s. In addition, women could not always secure a paid job. In fact, in some of the U.S. states, there were laws against hiring married women. Single women could work in secretarial positions or as a teacher or nurse mainly, but once wed would be expected to settle for housewife and mother, keeping the home fires burning, giving up unnecessary outside distractions.
2: History challenges us. Just as pioneer women followed their husbands to new lands and took up muskets to defend their homes built in the wilderness, so today are women doing their part. Some in the auxiliary armed forces, some as nurses, some taking up tools in the war effort at home. We women in industry are a vital part of the bulwark of national strength. We must resolve to work hard in our important places in the fight to bring about a lasting peace. The threat of hard-working women in the production of materials must make our enemies afraid of our day of victory that is sure to come. Our enemies must be made to feel the mighty power of women, the women behind the men, behind the guns. Our enemies must know that for them, there is danger. Women at work.
0: In the World War II era, And remember that war acts as a magnifier for societal norms. Women were deemed to be the weaker sex, not as intelligent or capable and helpless. Or they were viewed as vampish women with uncontrollable sexual urges. Generally, it was thought that women had to be protected, sometimes from themselves. These stereotypes did not and do not represent the fuller feminine spectrum of capabilities and put women in a subordinate position to men, as we know. Some have suggested that this position is biologically ingrained, and therefore patriarchy does not really exist, because why would women put up with it? Well, through very early assimilation into society's beliefs and rules, one does not necessarily appreciate the subtle and invisible lenses which construct one's reality, and therefore does not see the lack of choices and opportunities one is missing, let alone know that one could have a voice or how to express one's creative potential. Remember that through the witch hunts, women's history was decapitated, and knowledge that was usually passed down by women elders from generation to generation, including various and empowering ways of being, a woman were burned away. A fuller spectrum of what we may be and do is locked in our cultural shadow, and this continues today, albeit not as extreme as the World War II era. So since we we usually do not consciously perceive the lenses through which we view ourselves, others, and our reality, our beliefs about the parameters of our reality go unquestioned. Those who benefit from the status quo and who are in power usually do not wish to have cultural norms queried or have imaginations empowered unless it is within strict guidelines. And even if a woman is conscious of being denied her voice, how does she proceed within an era that denies her capacity to explore further by keeping her dependent on her husband or father, as was the case for the women, of course, in the 1930s and 40s? So the stereotypic World War II Allied Forces narrative is easily viewed through their propaganda because they specifically needed to shift the perspective of women being capable not only in the home but also working in factories and auxiliary military units while simultaneously keeping a lid on those stretched expectations so that post-war women would return to the home.
2: In plants and factories all over the country, this was a common sight at quitting time not so long ago. Today, we see a different scene. Women have joined the men in the production line, and the percentage of women in industry is expected to be much higher very soon. Millions of women who have never before been employed in industry and now enlisted in the nation's labor forces. They're stepping in wherever they are needed to do a man's job. Women in general are not as strong as men, But with the right equipment, adjusted to their capabilities, they can do just about the same work as men. Their employment, therefore, requires all the health and safety precautions necessary for men, plus some extra measures. Their part in the war effort is very important, but their understanding of basic safety rules and good health habits is just as important as the turning out of the thingamabob that's going to win the war. Who are these women? Where did they come from? They worked in restaurants. They were the homemakers who prepared meals for their families. They were the mothers who raised boys and girls to become fine men and women. They worked in offices. They liked fun and music and peace. But a couple of madmen came along and made them angry. Some sent their menfolk to active duty and then took jobs to help the war effort. From all walks of life, they came to help make secure our way of living. Who are these women? We are these women.
0: So the call to action was publicized as an aberration, a one-off. Women working outside the home was acceptable and honorable, but only during wartime.
2: We may feel that we simply have to take an extra day off to get a lot of shopping done or get ourselves a new hairdo and manicure. But we must realize, all of us, that before this war is won, we will have to sacrifice personal pleasures in order to do our jobs efficiently. Whenever we take extra time off, it leaves empty spaces in the production lines. Material piles up waiting for the operator who should be there. Your place in the war effort, however small you think it is, can cause a slow up of production by your unnecessary absence. The only way we can keep vital materials flowing in a steady stream to our sons, brothers, husbands, sweethearts, and neighbors on the battle lines is to stay on the job, practice good health habits, work safely, and keep up our end of the job. That's our part in bringing about a quick victory and a quick return of our loved ones.
0: Also, the societal pattern of men as the ones in charge at all times was maintained women were brought into auxiliary military units and support roles. The posters rolled out with sayings such as, Join the Women's Royal Naval Service and free a man to join the fleet. Or, enlist today with the Royal Canadian Air Force so that men may fly. The prevailing impression given was that men would return from the war sooner if women stepped into factory and military auxiliary positions. In addition, how women were portrayed in this call to aid their men was strategic. During the late 30s, there was a discussion about this when the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, in the UK came out with a very stylized graphic of a woman. It was deemed too glamorous, so another poster was printed with a real woman wearing a helmet. From then on, women were depicted in a helmet or a headscarf, the latter for factory-related posters. And women were specifically told to look like their Russian sisters. They were expected to keep their heads covered for apparently safety reasons, but across the board it seems now it was to reduce their potential feelings of empowerment. In the posters directed at men, we see contradictory stereotypes of women. Firstly, the virtuous, honorable, dutiful woman portrayed as a wife or mother with her children, for instance, huddled together looking out a window, longingly saying, The women of Britain say go. Or pictures of housewives and older parents of men saying, Remember, they are waiting. The inducement for men to fight was related to the need to protect their women, mothers, elders, and children. Women were also depicted as sexual victims, childlike and helpless, as images of them passively being carried away by a barbaric and hyper looking enemy were circulated. This reinforced the stereotype that women were helpless and in dire need of protection, and in portraying women in extreme, helpless images. It not only kept the men fighting, but also it effectively reduced the narrative of women's wartime contributions, and sacrifices. And to keep men from fraternizing with enemy women and maybe giving away secrets, we can witness the fault line from the nun-like stereotype of women to the whore or vamp. War posters displaying a very feminine and curvy woman with a caption, young, pretty, easy, but full of germs, avoid pickups, were published widely. This stereotype on steroids suggested that enemy women were unclean, loose-lipped, and ready to take advantage through their sexual prowess. And this corollary was, is related to the larger, continuous issue of women's sexuality being tainted and demonized, which in turn represses and subjugates free choice, creativity, and self-agency in all women. Overall, although women through their war engagement experienced new areas of autonomy and independence, they became specific targets of Allied propaganda, which focused on consistent messaging about the power gradient between women and men, and in turn repressed the many sacrifices and valor of women. Men always monopolized the power during World War II, and today you will hear this through Liliana's story, even though it was her abilities, adaptability, and cleverness which saved her and her husband from capture. Women post-war realized that fighting for Western culture under the power structure of the day hadn't shifted the sexist societal norms post-war. Their governments clamped down and used propaganda focusing then on homemaking and putting women back in the kitchen with images of suburban life with large families. This ended up fueling the women's liberation of the 60s and 70s. Today, through the Me Too and other movements, a chauvinistic pattern is being exposed, along with its enculturated lenses, but we still have some more patterns to excavate, choices to liberate. Before you hear Liliana's story, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the far more subtle and manipulative propaganda we live with today, computational propaganda, in which political actors use digital media for social control. As you know, with every credit card purchase and every Google search, every like on Facebook, every tweet and Instagram post, an astronomical amount of data is being collected and collated about you, and a hidden profile is built up of who you are and what actions you take. We are far easier targets than ever because what media platforms are compiling is focused on our unconscious and automatic behaviors. And suggestions are made to us, directing us. These may act like hypnotic suggestions, so that even when we know we are being directed and even manipulated, we cannot help ourselves. We go after the bait, believing the false scripting. Becoming more aware of our individual and cultural belief systems and our unconscious programming helps us remain grounded. But today we are like Liliana on her wedding day, naively going along, with what is presented through computational propaganda. Unlike her, we may not be able to extricate ourselves before it's too late. Now I'd like to share with you Liliana's story. Liliana was a young woman who grew up in Turkey graduated at 19 with five languages from a French convent, and before heading to Translation University in Poland, decided to take a gap year in France in 1939.
1: My story is a very long story. I am born in Batumi, Georgia, on the border of Turkey, which originally belonged to the former Russian Empire, but it was independent when I was born on May 25, 1920.
0: It was the summer of 2004, and for our first meeting, I drove to Liliana's bungalow on a quiet neighborhood street on the outskirts of Montreal. It was a balmy, warm August day, and white birches stretched up to the sunlight as I walked up to her front door. She appeared just as I was about to knock, and pushing the screen door open, she welcomed me inside with coiffed hair and looking elegant in a crisp white blouse, silver necklace, and a flared black skirt, her eyes twinkled enthusiastically. She asked me to take a seat at the dining room table while she finished making tea for us in the kitchen. The room was appointed with dark European furniture and a Turkish rug. A wooden box of black and white photos was on the table in front of me. She returned with tea for us, and I asked her to tell me how our World War II story began.
1: My paternal grandfather's line was a noble family in Poland until they were exiled to Russia. My parents met in Russia during the Bolshevik regime and lived in exile in Turkey. And my father was the officer in charge of the evacuation of the White Army to Istanbul. We fled to live in Turkey, where I was brought up. For 19 years, I did my study in Istanbul at a French convent called Notre Dame de Sion, becoming fluent in five languages. But I'm sorry, my English grammar is not good. It's better when I write. Upon graduation, I had planned to study at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Poland to become a translator. I did not feel claustrophobic in the convent like many did. I was always very independent, adventurous, and ready to take on new things. I was an only child and left to myself very much. My father was always traveling for work often, and um, my mother went with him. So I went to my parents' friend's house on weekends and major holidays, They also had a daughter at the school, and her mother became like a second mother to me. In 1939, after high school graduation, I left Istanbul to holiday in France at my mother's sister's home. My aunt had left Turkey many years before with my cousin, who was six years old, uh, with her Russian husband, He had a drinking problem, so she divorced and married a gentleman. When I arrived in 1939, she met me at the train in Paris. We spent a few days in Paris. I remember walking along the Champs Elysees on a beautiful sunny day, and she looked like a natural princess as her hair flowed about her in the breeze. She was beautiful and charming. Later in the week, a driver took us to her country home about 100 kilometers north of Paris. And then in May 1940, war broke out as the Nazis invaded from the north. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, and by order of the French government, we had to leave Anseline's home. It was chaotic. Since my uncle was away, my aunt, who had not driven in over 20 years, had to drive. We were packed in, my aunt, my grandmother, my cousin, and myself. It was a terrible. We were so afraid as we left for Paris. We drove all night, and in the morning, were able to find a woman driver in Paris. W- there were no men, they were all at the front. From Paris, and with little sleep, we traveled to a chateau Lyon, about 300 kilometers south in a town called saint froix The chateau was the Chateau de Launay. It belonged to my aunt's husband's family. We all lived there until the signing of the armistice with Germany in June 1940. My grandmother died during that time and was buried on the chateau grounds. After my grandmother's death, my aunt decided to leave the chateau to travel to Vichy, about 100 kilometers away, to try and find her husband, who was Polish nobility, working as an officer fighting in France. She had heard he was taken prisoner and being held at a camp for officers. He had been gassed in World War I, and she felt he would not last long in prison. I went with her to Vichy. We waited to have news of my uncle. Since We had not kept abreast of the war news. We were surprised by the unclear political situation in Vichy. Although the French administered the government, the Germans were in control. Some French people were accepting of the changes and some were not. So you didn't know who you could trust. It was especially shocking for us as we had both been protected in our lives in Turkey and France. We did not realize that the Nazis had really taken over. It was a shock. But since we had to wait to hear about my uncle, I found a job at the Polish Red Cross in Vichy. Soon, I was doing secretarial work in their head office due to my proficiency in French and uh, Polish. And my uncle was um, finally returned to my aunt in 1941, and he was very ill. Because they were a count and countess, it made a difference in how the family was treated, that he was even returned at all. Anne Céline was told to go where she had connections because it was very unpleasant to live in Vichy. The Vichy police were more and more under German control, and one did not know how things would unfold and if wealthier people would be targeted. She decided to return to the chateau and uh, care for him there. My aunt told me, I can't take you with me. She did not want the responsibility, She said, you are 21, the Red Cross is moving, and you have to go with the other girls. This Red Cross has lodging and everything you need. I paid out of my wages, but they supplied well. My aunt was very, very happy to get rid of me, and I felt I could not impose on her during these hard times. But I was also very sad I could not return to Turkey, nor had I any communication with my parents. Uh, There was a young lieutenant uh, coming regularly from Marseille to Vichy to transport funds to be dispersed to refugees at the Red Cross. Even at that time, there was still a Polish embassy in Vichy. It, It didn't last, though every country had its embassy in vichy and then in 1941 everything had to close and even the polish red cross had to move to grenoble so this young man a lieutenant in the polish military had been coming regularly to the office i worked in we got quite friendly and you know we were flirting and this one day, after my aunt told me she was returning to the chateau, I was sitting a little bit lost in the cafeteria and w- wondering what to do. As I had not prepared for being left or for moving on with the Red Cross, I was crying was an only child and had always been home or at boarding school and suddenly I had to decide what I would do without anyone to consult. I was upset. He came in and sat down beside me asking me, why are you so sad? I told him, he said, why don't we get married? Just like that. I was a little bit unsure because I was engaged to a Polish officer who had left for London. He told me to write him to a certain military address. I had been writing already for a year and never got an answer. I thought that war is war. Maybe it was not serious for him. You never know. He was from a working-class background, only spoke Polish, and not refined like the boys I had met growing up, but he had kind eyes. You know, although I presumed my parents were in Turkey, I had no way to get home. So that day I said, why not? War. He, he said that he was offering marriage now because he was also leaving for Lyon and would have a special job there. I did not ask him any questions about where in Lyon or what kind of job. It didn't really matter to me in that moment. It felt exciting, and also it felt more secure to me than staying with the Red Cross. Besides, I always liked having a boy around In October 1941, we got married in a very simple civil ceremony in Vichy, but I was shocked that the name I knew him by was not his real name. It came out during the ceremony that he had another name. In fact, Brigadier General Julius Kleberg, his commanding officer, came to bring his true but secret identification papers because he was working undercover in France. This general also witnessed our marriage, so it was legal. And I did not know what the special job in Lyon was to be until that day. He had been assigned to work undercover in Lyon by the Polish-British military agreement because at that time... London dominated all the regions for the Polish-French resistance. He was to be chief of the first cell of the Polish resistance, to be organized by the Polish government in exile, in cooperation with the British military and the French resistance. He was to be the conduit with the British office, and I too was to be part of that organization. But I didn't know what that meant. And when we arrived in Lyon, there was no lodging available and the Germans were everywhere, having taken the city in June 1940. I had an uncle in Lyon who was with the war effort, so we moved into his flat for free. The studio was on the top floor, maybe seven flights up, It was quite terrible as it was very cold. Sometime after arriving, I went to stand in line for hours waiting to receive a bag of coal for the stove. They were only giving out big 50 kilogram bags and I carried it myself up to our floor. And the same night I had a miscarriage. I was completely covered in blood I did not even know I was pregnant. But fortunately, everything was okay, and I didn't worry about it any further. I did what was needed. We had to keep to ourselves, so that meant I couldn't engage anyone to help me or make friends with a neighbor. We tried to avoid as many as possible, and (laughs) being newlywed was a good cover. We wanted our privacy. Soon after our arrival, our resistance contacts in Lyon, an emissary, uh, Mr. Bittner, who was a Polish engineer, came to see us, bringing the wireless machine and code manual. We were taught how to encode, encrypt messages, and decode. There was another resistance cell member, a courier, coming regularly to bring us information. I don't know who he was or what place he was from, but he didn't seem to fit in with us. He was much older. By February 1942, we were fully underway and we received reports from our courier, encoded them, and sent them on to London to our Polish military connections who were working with the British government to track army movements and anything about German military orchestration in the area. Any changes of troops, trains, headquarters, commander activity – any important information from the area was recorded and delivered for us to send on. We also received coded messages from London directly and later through radio broadcasts. We decoded and readied these orders and messages for pickup. I learned alongside of my husband since we were the first and only military resistance cell in eastern France to connect with London directly, we were busy very quickly. Later, I learned that all early messages were received by MI5 at Bletchley Park and then passed on. At the time, no one knew about MI5 and the decoding at Bletchley. Anyhow, At one point, we needed a radio to receive BBC broadcasts as some information was coming that way. So I went looking through the local shops, but all had bare shelves. Finally, I found a store with a radio, but the owner said it was his and that he would not part with it. I stayed talking and cajoling with him for half an hour, and left with the radio, I came to understand that I had sensibilities around the undercover work that went beyond my languages and secretarial skills. And later, I realized that in a crisis, I had the ability to go cold and to do what was needed. That served me very well as the war went on. You know, I found the undercover work thrilling, and especially because I was able to maneuver in situations where men were not. At times, women are more capable than men, sometimes smarter, more, you know, not the intelligence you cultivate from coursework, but naturally smart every day in all circumstances, more diplomatic and we are more pliable. I realized I was very adaptable. I could deal with all kinds of hardships and situations. It was like being tested, but in completely different ways, in things I never knew I could do. It was all so spontaneous and thrilling. For six months, we were secluded with little food, working daily, receiving the resistance couriers, coding reports, sending messages, deciphering and preparing incoming messages. It was a lot of work, and we never knew if we'd be discovered. Very intense. I, I was scared, but I did the work anyways. And then one night it all came to an end— we were sleeping, and somebody was knocking at the door loudly. It was Bitner, one of our two main contacts, saying, I want you to be out of here with the equipment and everything in half an hour. The Gestapo had captured our other contact, the older man. They had discovered a report on him. A friend who was undercover at the Lyon police station told Bitner of the capture— even if he didn't give up our names or location, it meant the Germans knew that there was a wireless radio operator and therefore a military cell in the area. Also, they would know that reports were being sent in and out, so they would search for us door to door and begin scanning up and down the streets for radio signals. They would find us. Also, We would be caught by the fact that my husband only spoke Polish, and, of course, the neighbors knew we had just moved into the flat. Anyhow, we couldn't use the radio any longer. We had to leave. Later, I found out that wireless operators only lasted about six weeks in the field and a little longer if they were stationary like we were, Being the first cell in the area, we lasted uh, longer, about six months. When someone was taken by the police for interrogation, you didn't know whether they would talk or not. You can't tell by looking or working with someone if they will break under torture. Let's say if my husband didn't talk and I did... I could give the brigadier general's name that was much higher up the chain of command than my husband, overseeing all Polish resistance cells one just never knew. Getting caught was always a worry. You had to be always thinking on your feet, but even then, if someone turned you in, they could just come and pick you up. We had to disappear and do whatever we Wanted with the equipment. My husband said that the only way we can survive is to go to Marseille, where he still had Polish military contacts. We dressed and then packed the equipment and manual in a suitcase. We didn't take anything else with us and headed to the train station. I don't know if they still have it, but then you could send a suitcase or parcel by Petit Vitesse, You gave it to the rail station, and it was sent on a, a, well, not a commercial, but a very slow train. We gave an address in Bordeaux, which didn't exist, and a name, which didn't exist. And then we took the first train to Marseille to live in the red light district because it was safe. Our Polish military contacts were there. The women there were into the Polish officers and uh, very good to the Polish officers, you know, helpful. They could relay information. Now, this is where we hid in a rooming house in the red light district. It was excellent cover for us. These women were very good to us, sheltered us, gave us food, and protected our whereabouts. Many of the women were just surviving the war. Men from their own families and relationships had gone off to war, and this is how they made money to take care of themselves and their children. I felt compassion for them and was grateful. We hardly left our room and didn't know anything about how things had unfolded in Lyon, just waited for word We did not move. Oh No, we did not go out. Well, we did not go out because we had no money. We had nothing. And then we didn't know who to trust in Marseille beyond the rooming house we were in. Just like in Lyon, we didn't have contact with anyone outside of our cell. In Marseille, believe me, by night the police, the sirens... I was, you know, not not very courageous, but we survived. I think when you are young, you don't realize the danger. I was 21. He was 28. That was it. He was doing it because he believed in something. I did it also in that way, but it was too much to think about at that time. It was so dangerous. Within 10 days, Bitner arrived from Lyon to let us know he was safe. The other guy had not turned him in as yet, but he did not know if our names and information had been given to the police. So we were still in danger. We had to leave France and Bittner had come to help us out. He told us that, unfortunately, they could not take us through Spain because the route was closed. The contacts were not working, which was not unheard of. But to go by ourselves through the Pyrenees Mountains, it was already November and was too dangerous because Franco's police would pick us up. And there was a terrible prison there, Prison Miranda. It was very hard there. They thought that I, as a young woman, might not be able to go through it. Uh, The torture, that is. I would break and the network would be compromised. We discussed it for a while and then Bitner said, you wait, we'll try something else. And he returned with money. You make yourself presentable, just like people who are well off, so he gave us a lot of money, French identification papers, and said, You buy whatever you need. We went to the French Quarter. I bought a fur coat and dressed like a French aristocrat. I had a purple, pinkish hat with a large feather in it. We took a train to near the Swiss border, disembarking in a small town to catch the next train from there to Geneva. A farmer had lands on both sides of the border, and we had hoped that there would not be a checkpoint. But, of course, there were German soldiers guarding the station and border crossing to Switzerland. I showed the French documents that Bittner had given us, did the talking, and said, I had some problems, lost a child... And needed a rest and fresh air, and we were on our way to the French countryside for me to recuperate. I didn't want them to ask my husband to talk because he could not speak French, so I said he had a sore throat. You know, it was critical for him that I spoke French because he only had a few words. And, of course, I could speak French so that no one knew I was a foreigner, They let us walk right through, and we walked toward the train for Geneva, down the dirt road to another small crossing, and then we saw Swiss guards, so we made a detour to avoid them and more questions. We were lucky that no one had questioned my husband and why we were traveling at night. We walked a little way down the road and crossed the border, but we had to cross a ditch to walk around the guards in darkness. I slipped, and one of my high heels fell off in the stream. We scrambled to find it in the darkness and cold water, but we did bypass the Swiss Guards and catch a train to Geneva. We arrived in uh, one thirty a.m. without a problem. No one checked our papers on the train at that time of night, but I wondered if our apartment hosts would even answer the door, We were able to get a taxi to drive us to the safe house, and although we weren't expected at night, they were waiting for us. Through the Polish and French resistance contacts, our hosts were very gracious but didn't want us to stay too long. We took a couple of days to recoup and plan how to obtain refugee papers from the Polish embassy in Zurich without raising questions along the way. Switzerland was supposedly neutral during the war, but we all knew they were not. They would have turned us over to the Nazis or tortured us if they discovered us without proper identification and thought we were with the resistance. The Swiss police were considered to be as bad as the Gestapo. There were many german supporting Swiss, and they were severe with resistance prisoners. So, It was decided that I would travel alone by train to the Polish embassy in Zurich, pretending to be a Swiss citizen. My husband could not go as he did not speak anything other than Polish. The only thing that would save me if identification was asked for on the train were the coupons. You see, there were two types of coupons for food, clothing, and travel— one for the Swiss and one for refugees. The woman with whom we stayed said to me, I will give you my Swiss coupons, but you must look like a Swiss lady. I will give you some wool for knitting and a bag and then take first class. The train was not out of the Geneva station when I opened my bag to retrieve the wool and start my pretend knitting, only to discover an officer approaching me asking where I was traveling to. I said, On my way to visit a friend in Zurich, when he asked for my identification papers, I began digging in my purse and, looking surprised, said, oh my gosh, I forgot them. I I don't know. I, I just have my tickets. And he said, show them to me. He looked at them closely and said, I'll let you go. But next time, don't forget your papers. He could tell the coupons were given to a Swiss family. And I made my way to the Polish embassy, and they were so surprised that it was me rather than my husband. Not sure how they thought he would get there. Anyhow, there was some concern and disbelief, but with discussion, I overcame their hesitancy. All the documents had been arranged for both of us as Polish refugees, but to acquire accommodation as a Polish refugee, I had to go to the Swiss police station in Zurich. And I tried to look less like a Swiss resident and more like a refugee. And thankfully, my story for being a refugee from Poland held up, and I was given the name and address of a woman in a small Swiss town. I returned to Geneva with refugee coupons, and my husband and I moved on, using the story that we were Polish refugees. Neither of us could return to France, but... It was a fantastic coincidence that the Swiss lady we stayed with was so lovely. She said she felt so sorry for us as a young couple, and she gave us her bedroom. She was so generous and kind, and she became like a mother to me to the end of her life. Her family is still family to me.
0: When the war ended, Liliana
1: divorced her husband. You know, we had a connection, chemistry, but he came from a simple family in Poland. We came from two different worlds, and it was a clash. I had made my decision to marry him just like that. But in the end, we were not well-suited. We did good work together and had a wonderful son. He married me in part for my skills, He needed someone who had language and secretarial skills, and someone who could be his cover, including using my uncle's flat in Lyon. But, you know, he also saved me from a concentration camp. All the girls I worked with in the Polish Red Cross were all sent to Ravensbrück. Not for a long time, but they went. I never heard what happened to my fiancé, But my husband returned to Poland in 1947 and ended up in jail for seven years. There was a mix-up between him and someone else. He was sentenced to death and then pardoned at the last minute. You know, he was a rebel. My second husband was a lawyer from Poland and we could have had French nationality because he had fought for France and been a POW there. But we did not wish to do that or return to Poland. He knew Poland had been decimated. He had returned for a while after the war as head of the Polish Red Cross. So we moved to Canada. I pushed him to go. I would have been a flight attendant if I was young now, I always loved to travel. My husband could not work as a lawyer, so eventually he had his own insurance business. I spent those early years taking care of the children and helping him, later becoming a partner in the business. He was the love of my life. He died six years ago, but I learned from the war experience to face life in different and difficult situations not falling down in depression. I hoped to be judged by what I have done in my life. Looking back, I realized that the fulfillment of a woman's lifetime is to arrive at a harmonious combination of different aspects of love and understanding with her partner. The most important aspects of a partnership are sex, love, motherhood, harmony, and respect. I've had four lives in one.
0: That was Liliana's story. Colleen Winton was the voice of Liliana. episode of Invisible Women, I'll explore psychological projection, how it aided the women spies, and how it influences us in our daily life. Projection. That's coming up on the next episode. Please visit us on the web, where you'll find additional information and resources. And also, I'd like to invite you to leave comments or ask questions you may have, and also subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that on the website www.invisiblewomen.ca. This podcast is produced by Robert Webat. I'm Diane Gregg. Thanks for listening.